0: Welcome to Goodwill Hunters. Here, we'll explore the ultimate question, how to use profits for purpose. It's been said business must help solve the global challenges we face. In this podcast, we explore how. How can the private and not-for-profits work better together? What truly constitutes aid and progress? And how can we transform international development? Here, we talk with the thought leaders, the game changers, the intellectuals, and the campaigners. I'm your host, Rachel Mason-Nunn, and this is Goodwill Hunters. Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 54 of Goodwill Hunters. Before I introduce you to today's guest, I want to say a huge thank you to everyone who listened to our last episode with the Minister for International Development and the Pacific, Alex Hawke. The reception to the episode was quite amazing, particularly the media attention it received on ABC News and The Guardian. If you haven't listened yet, I highly encourage you to do so, and if you did listen and it was your first episode of Goodwill Hunters, then welcome. It's great to have you here. So now to today's guest. As you know, a few weeks back I went to Papua New Guinea with the Lowy Institute as part of the Australia PNG Emerging Leaders Dialogue. The dialogue was expertly facilitated by a team from Lowy, including Watna Mori. I met Watna at Brisbane Airport, and I think about 10 seconds into our conversation, we were already laughing, which you'll certainly hear us do more of in this episode. Watna grew up between Papua New Guinea and Australia. She studied law and now works primarily in the area of human rights law. She has also worked in the Manus Island and Nauru detention centres representing asylum seekers. Watna also does a whole lot more, which we'll start to unpack in this episode. You'll hear us chat about growing up between Australia and PNG, Australia's colonial legacy and the impact of offshore detention on this legacy, the need for more locally owned tourism in PNG, the future of Australian aid to PNG, and also a really cool fact about M&Ms. You'll have to stay tuned for that one. As always, I hope you enjoy the episode. Watna, thank you for chatting with me you've had a really interesting journey between australia papua new guinea studying in amsterdam growing up in perth and you've got a really kind of varied experience so if you could start by telling us about that i think that would be great
1: yeah so I, i i was born in png and lived in mount Hagen, where my mother is is from um up until the age of i think 13. um and, you know, my parents, just like most, most Papua New Guinea people their age were sort of trying starting out in the careers. They had, had us in their, um, or had me as the eldest in their early 20s. Um, so we lived in the village for a huge part of my life, especially me and my sister. I've got four, three siblings, sorry. And the, the first two, we lived in the village until we were about I think in year one or two or something, and then we moved to town. So that was a really great foundation, and I really um, that's really shaped a lot of my um, my life and the things that I I value. Um, and then when I was when I was about thirteen, I moved to Perth where my aunt was because a lot of Papua New Guineans do this—they send their kids if they can afford to to Australia for education. Um, so my dad's sister was living there, and it was far, but because she was. Um, a close family member and her daughter's about the same age as me um they thought it would be a great fit so that was it was good but it was a huge culture shock also Perth so far away there. not a lot of people knew PNG where it was where I was from um and it was a huge now looking back I'm like wow that was that was massive but at the time you just sort of go with it um and I stayed there for 10 years and then so I finished. Um, university there as well, and I then got an internship in The Hague with the tribunal for the former Yugoslavia. Um, So I went to The Hague and loved it and stayed back for a master's at the University of Amsterdam where a lot of my um, friends had, who I met in the internship had had gone to. So, yeah, and then I returned back to PNG, worked at the Law Reform Commission, Constitutional Law Reform Commission, so I was a public servant, um, which was – also a really great experience. Um, And then went to Manus and Nauru uh, as a refugee lawyer. And I've just recently this year moved back to Australia, to Sydney, um, which I never thought I would do. When I left Australia, I thought that was it. But now I'm back.
0: (laughs) Now you're back. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, that's, that's so interesting. There's so much that we could talk about there. But you mentioned that your earliest years living in the village were really formative for your values. Um, What do you mean by that? And do you think that influenced your choice of studying law?
1: Yeah, uh, definitely. I mean, I think, so uh, we lived in the village and when my uh, my mum and dad were working, so we spent a lot of time with um, my grandmother and just everyone in the village, as we do in most Melanesian communities, everyone's sort of raising all the children and the children are raising themselves as well. I just like during the day we'd go off on these activities to rivers and stuff, just a bunch of young children with a few older children. But looking back, I'm like, there was definitely a safety issue there. Um, <laughs> but you don't think of it as that it's like the kids have gone to the river for the day and the eldest kid amongst us would have been maybe like 10. Um, but it made, it gave me a strong sense of community and, um, and and doing things not for yourself but for everyone and how it uh, and, and decisions that were about yourself, you would also have to discuss with everyone. Um, it can be really cumbersome sometimes in my as an adult, I found it to be quite cumbersome sometimes that you have to talk to everyone about decisions that are really just about yourself. Um, but it did make me and, and yeah, I definitely think it I influenced the type of law that I that I practiced. Um, that I practice now I didn't want to be a lawyer I didn't yeah but um my parents were very strong on that um but then I realized that there were things that I could do in the law um that I could that I could yeah that my values could come through on and that's how I started sort of doing a lot of public law and human rights work I focused on that
0: yeah and I'd like to get into that more. I think what you just said there though is really it was a really interesting take on the nuance of community and family in Papua New Guinea and it's things that anyone who works in Papua New Guinea really needs to understand. That that concept of wantok and having to consult everyone on a decision that you've made and also that family structure whereby it's not your nuclear family that is bringing up the children, it's the community at large. Like I think those are really significant um, fabrics of Papua New Guinean society which are really important for us to understand here.
1: Yeah, I I think the one thing I say about um, PNG all the time is that the most important thing for us uh, is relationships. Our relationships with other people we value above everything else so even in terms of business because I do some um, advisory work and when people ask me like oh maybe we can get them on the phone or uh, that's great as follow-ups but if you want to do business in PNG if you want to do anything in PNG you really need to meet people and and have that connection because we are really about that and if we connect with you on a person level um, everything else sort of Flows from there, so I think that's one of the most important thing about um, about understanding Papua New Guinea, Melanesia in general, I would say, but Papua New Guinea especially is that it's about our our relationships at the end of the
0: end of the day. Yeah, it's so important to understand that. So. You said there that your focus on human rights law was a product of your upbringing in Papua New Guinea. So let's let's start to talk about that. So human rights in PNG. What does it mean to PNG? Like, what's what's the big picture human rights context of, of PNG?
1: Um, I, I think we have we have so we I think have have always been quite um, human rights focused traditionally but in in a community sense so in a community sense we want to make sure everyone everyone if, if you're part of a tribe if you're part of that community everyone makes sure that you have enough to eat that you're respected that you so that's that's our traditional way of, of looking at human rights. Um, I think the Western way of looking at human rights as an in individual rights is something quite new to us and sometimes there's a bit of pushback because we think that um, it's sort of taking away from, from our traditional um, ideas or, or traditional sort of s- society. Um, especially when you talk about women and children's rights, there's a bit of a, there's, yeah, there's definitely a bit of pushback on that front. Um, so I know that some, some organizations, when they go into PNG um, who are advocating for rights Try to do so in a in a family way. We're looking at it as a family, but within the family, you also have these rights, um, and that's probably a uh, I would say a better way of looking at it because then everyone sort of has an un, a better understanding of what we're talking about. But it, it once we talk about individual rights, it's it's really difficult in PNG for us to say each person has this right and advocated advocated for it as you know your right is. Um, this is in inalienable. In, in, in it's above all the, everything else because that, those that concept of individual rights and our community-based focus um, it can be misconstrued.
0: Yep. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. definitely. And I think that must be a really difficult thing in a society that has quite long-standing traditional laws around human rights, as you said, um, which are not written on paper but that have endured. You know, numerous generations to then transition into a formal legal system and attempt to create a legal system that can somehow cover the eight hundred different language groups in PNG. That must be really difficult, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, it is very difficult, and also because I think um, our focus really traditionally has been sort of socio-economic rights more than civil and political, Um, and I can't say that for all png because we we do have different t- traditional structures in uh, other parts of png but um say in say in the highlands we really did focus on um sure you could say your peace and that sort of thing but at the end of the day whatever you whatever came out from that particular tribe comes up from all of you as as a group um so within yourselves you could assert your rights but Asserting your rights to other tribal groups, you are asserting it as a, as a group, or to the public, you are asserting it as a group. So you didn't, you couldn't just go out and say, say things and advocate for yourself. That was not a, that was not a done thing. Um, but and then, but then within the tribe, we, in, in terms of socio economic rights, making sure that everyone had access to food and shelter, and that that was a very, that, that was very important, and and and. I think there was a lot more focus on that um, traditionally. So if someone is a widow, for example, and they, there's no man to do the, the man, like a female widow, and there was no man to do the man things like build a house, the whole community does that for the widow. Or if food comes into the community, um, they will give, they will think about the, the, the man or the woman without a partner first and then they'll distribute to everyone else. So in that way, I think, yeah, traditionally we had a, a focus more on socioeconomic rights and civil and polit- political rights. And then with civil and political rights, it was more important for us to present as a, as a group um, than for each individual to be asserting, you know, their their right to say this or their right to yeah express themselves in that way.
0: That's a really useful explanation because I'm realizing there that the need for civil and political rights doesn't really emerge until you have a central government who is expected to govern an entire nation. and you know that in the big scheme of things is a fairly recent development for Papua New Guinea.
1: Yeah, so what would happen I um, and I'm really talking about my my culture in in the highlands um, is what would happen within our tribal groups is that within your family and within your family group you could have those discussions that I feel this way about that this is my right to this and that but once the families get together there would be one person representing that family and that person would speak for everyone within the family so so within I suppose within each of our tribes and then we have complex tribal systems as well there was some kind of central government in, sen- in the sense that there was some sort of central group that represented everyone else. But in terms of seeing ourselves as a nation, that's definitely something that has been created recently, um, and it's something that we work worked really hard on and still work hard on. And if you look back at our early independence, there's a lot of sort of songs and we have the National Pledge and all these things for us to start to identify um, as one country. So it's, 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 it's been a work in progress. Um, And I know sometimes people say that we've, like other Papua Guineans will say, we're sort of uh, becoming more regionalists and we're breaking away from this identity of being a nation. Um, But I think sports is a really good indication of, of when that we are still identifying as a nation when you see you know the png Kumuls or the orchids like they just did against england beating them and even when we lose which is a lot of the times um (laughs) i think that's a that's a good time for you to see how um how what we feel about each other how we feel as, as as a country
0: the win for the orchids is so significant I, I'm, I, it's, it's just massive because we were in Papua New Guinea with Kathy Neep, who captained, I think the first Hawkins team. All kids team. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and I saw the documentary Power Mary, which I'm sure you've also seen. And
1: no, uh, I haven't seen it yet. Oh my
0: gosh. You I've must see it. i on my
1: to-do list forever. <laughs> <laughs>
0: it's so, so good. There were so many screenings in Sydney. Um, and, you know, it was just this amazing look at, you know, the first female football team in Papua New Guinea, and to think that they've now gotten to a point where they've just beat the, the English team, when you understand the history of the Orchids and what it took to get to this moment, it is so massive.
1: Yes, definitely. And I, I went and saw them when they, when they first started playing together and I, I can't remember what competition it was here in Sydney. I don't know if it was a world – I can't remember. But that was the first um, Orchids game that I watched and that was – yeah, they've – from that to this has been rapid um, development and just in terms of their skills, not even without looking at the, you know, the struggles of getting together and forming this team and um, all the other social issues that they had to face. Um, But in terms of their their playing development, that's been, that's been rapid because I think I watched that game in maybe 2017 or something like that. So, yeah.
0: Yeah. It's, I, I think, you know, 10 years from now, that moment will be looked back on as a really significant step for women in, in Papua New Guinea um, as part of Papua New Guinea's bigger picture nation building. Um, I think we probably don't even realise the full weight of that that moment right now. But on the point of nation building, you you obviously can't discuss the last 40-plus years for Papua New Guinea without discussing Australia. Um, the mm. history of Papua New Guinea is inextricably linked to to the former colonisation of Australia and the independence process and kind of what's happened since 1975. Um, And I think that a lot of Australian policies towards PNG over the last 40 or so years have have been significant and in some instances, probably harmful. And I think offshore detention is an example of that. What has been your experience of the impact of that policy on the Australia PNG relationship?
1: I think most Papua New Guineans were very much against it. Um, And it was not just because of, you know, the human rights related issues to offshore detention, but the fact that Australia saw us as this dumping ground, like, oh, yeah, this is a problem that we can Export to PNG because we, we we don't want to deal with it here, um, and also the the kind of language that was being used around it, you know that that Australia was too good for asylum seekers, and they would use PNG and Nauru as a, as a deterrent. Like it was so terrible there that once these people went to PNG and Nauru, no one else would ever want to come to Australia because they'd also end up there. And then the ongoing language that was used, not just by Australian um, politicians, but also by, you know, advocates for refugees about, about PNG and, and, and about Nauru, which was, I mean, it was really terrible because, yeah, for us it was really terrible. It made us feel like we have we felt for a, a, a long time, I think, with Australia is that, you know, it, it sort of looks down on us that we are uh, this Problem for them, and that we are, despite everything about the Kokoda, our shared history, um, uh, this sort of brother relationship that we have, um, that that really what what they see us as is just a, a failed state, and they use that a lot that term. In, in Australian media you always see failed state failing state possibly disintegrating state is something i read recently <laughs> um, so that's sort of yeah that sort of language which, which sort of it's it's not it's not great for australia png re- relations it's not great for how png um, perceives australia and australian politics so offshore um, option detention was is has definitely not been one of australia's it's probably one of australia's worst um policies for PNG and and for Nauru.
0: It's so saddening when you describe how that looked for for people in Papua New Guinea as though this was a problem we couldn't deal with and so we were dumping it on you. It's yeah, it's, yeah I'm almost speechless and I, I sort of I knew that that was the sentiment in Papua New Guinea and I've been working in Papua New Guinea for enough years now to hear that firsthand but when you look at it through that lens, you know, few things could have been worse for the relationship. Yeah, Um, And it's a shame because I actually think Australia and Papua New Guinea are doing fantastic things together. I think our aid program to Papua New Guinea for the most part is really fantastic. And I think we have a government on both countries that is really committed to the relationship. And so it's a shame when policies such as that one can really mar the whole relationship.
1: Yeah, and and especially because it's been going on for so long and it's still ongoing, and um, for us, and I, I think in the dialogue we talked a lot about it, is that, you, you know, PNG has so much potential. We have so many problems, but we also have so much potential, and one of them is tourism, and we can't access this potential if we have... Uh, the kind of reporting that's out there about PNG and and the the kind of language that's used about PNG, especially in this context with with the offshore detention, um, it's seen as you know dangerous. That the living standards are you know so terrible that we're violent people. That all, like all the stuff that comes out, not just not just from Australian politics, obviously, but also but just the the media coverage around it um, and the whole the advocacy around it around um, offshore detention so for some for some place like Manus it's it's really terrible and Manus is one of the most beautiful places in PNG and also Manus people are some of the most beautiful um, people in PNG and there's very so very relaxed and and really welcoming really great people I was I thought that before I went to Manus I have a lot of Manus friends and then when I went to Manus I and worked there for three years Um, it was confirmed so it's for them there's a there's a lot of damage that's done to them and it just adds to our international reputation as this terrible country that no one should want to go to and that's what i get asked the most common question i get asked about png is is it as dangerous as they say it is um and that's from people everywhere all over If, if i say i'm from png that's if it's not the first question it's the second question i get asked
0: yeah Oh, it's crazy. I mean, same. Like it's the first question I get asked every time I get back yeah. from a trip there. But it's it's funny when you point out how beautiful Manus is because, gosh, we couldn't be further from having you know an Australian book a holiday to Manus. Um, yeah, <laughs> I think we are many years off that, um, which which is a, you know wasted. Potential, but I think that's the direction that we're hopefully going in. You know tourism to Papua New Guinea broadly is hopefully on the up, and I think there's some great initiatives which which you can speak really well about. Um, what's your take on the potential for tourism to transform parts of the Papua New Guinean economy?
1: I just yeah, tourism is such a great untapped potential um, industry in PNG that could. Affect everyone without without too much concern about you know too much reliance on the government. So where money could go directly to all these rural communities, all these communities that you know the government may not be reaching with um, every other service that they're meant to provide. But (laughs) that like tourism has such great potential to be able to make them self reliant Um, and. And people are out there trying to to do that. Papinegians, there's a lot of Papinegians out there trying to do that. And I, and um, at this emerging leaders dialogue, we talked about you know how technology can really assist them with that, um, because yeah, they're already doing it. It's it's about marketing it and and getting the word out there. And and I think the more we teach ourselves and the more more people we host, the more tourists we host, we will be able to develop the culture. Because right now, I think one of our biggest struggles is we don't know what tourists want. And because tourists aren't coming, we're not able to sort of figure out, uh, figure this industry out and realise, you know, these are the kind of things they're into. This is how I would um, deal with tourists from here and there. And these are the kind of things they want to see. Um, But I think slowly, as more and more people come, we will also uh, realise what it is, how it is that we're meant to not sell this country, but offer our services. And all the beautiful things that we have.
0: Yeah. And I think another element of that discussion in the dialogue was that it's a specific kind of tourist that we mm. need to promote yeah. Papua New Guinea to. Um, and that you don't want to sell the idea that, you know, the infrastructure's really great, like the roads are really good, um, yeah. which, which they're not, <laughs> as mm. we both know. So I think, yeah. like, I think there's things like that where you've got to be really realistic in what what you're actually selling people and really amplify how special that experience is for what it is rather than trying to have a tourist strategy to Papua New Guinea that's the same as you know Bali or Tokyo or something like Papua New Guinea is such a specific destination to sell um and it's yeah yeah
1: and I think that's what the tourism the PNG Tourism Promotion Authority struggles with because what they're good at doing is going around the world to these, you know, big events um, with someone in traditional um, bilas and they're really good at marketing us out there and, and, and then all the uh, tell, telling tourists about all the big hotels that we have. Um, but that's such a limited audience and it's an audience that has to have money. What the tourism promotion authority is not doing enough of is looking at all these alternative places that are selling the, P- the the real PNG. This is what PNG is like, and this is what we can offer you. We can't give you all those fancy resorts and you know have someone come to your to your resort to perform for, for you so you have a taste of our culture. You will get our culture twenty four seven. Um, so that's that's the alternative. That's what we really offer. And I, I think the tourism promotion, there's a, there's a gap there, and the Tourism Promotion Authority really needs to do more um, to sort of bring that out and market that and also assist people who, who are willing or who are running tourism um, services to sort of make it more, not pal- palatable, but I suppose to make it more, not sophisticated, but it, it presented in a way that you know tourists would would be would first of all know about it being out there and then secondly be able to easily communicate and and get to these places and yeah so there's a, there's a space for the tourism promotion authority to sort of bridge that gap and where it's not people are already doing it by themselves and there's a lot of airbnb listings i think when i listed on airbnb um the first time for my house in Port Moresby, there were maybe three or four Airbnb listings. Now there's so many all over PNG. And in some places like Lake Kutubu, which you would not think, like I've never been to Lake Kutubu. I would never think of going there because, like, I don't know anyone from there, which is how you would normally do it. You'd be like, well, I wouldn't go there because I wouldn't know anyone there. It's really remote. Um, the only other people that I know that go out there are people who work there. I mean, people who aren't from there. But now I could go out there because someone's listed their guest house on Airbnb out in Lake Kutubu. Yeah. So people are just going out there and trying to do, do it for themselves, but it does really need a government. sort of government push assistance to... Um, to give them that even bigger platform that they need and to give them the training that they need.
0: Yep. Airbnb is an amazing agent of change for for developing economies that are kind of just navigating the tourism space. I think Airbnb is phenomenal. And I think what's yeah. the other thing that's really exciting about tourism and Airbnb is that it helps us to change the narrative for P&G. Like we mm. need more Australians have so just gotten back from a trip to Papua New Guinea and don't have to talk about say how bad the roads were or kind of be boasting about you know whether or not it was safe but rather can be like I oh, yeah. stayed in this really cool Airbnb like it gives us the opportunity yeah. to change the narrative and we all especially those of us that work in the development sector and go to Png regularly really have a responsibility to be mindful of the narrative that we're sharing about Png for
1: true sure. yeah I'm, I'm, I'm really glad you you pointed that out yeah because sometimes png's seen people who go out there and come back see it as like they're an exception like i did this exceptional thing i went out to png oh my god but what we really need to yeah like you're saying is say well you can do it too because i went out there it was just this really great experience i did this and this and not so much i braved png but i went and had a great experience in png yeah
0: yeah it's funny and yeah actually anecdotally I think the coolest fact that we learned in Papua New Guinea was that the chocolate in all M&Ms comes from yes. Papua New Guinea. <laughs> yes. It's actually the that best thing I think I've ever heard. And that's just, that's, that's the thing that I keep telling people about Papua New Guinea now. I'm like, do you know where your M&M chocolate came from?
1: <laughs> yeah. And I mean, then these are things that we don't, we don't put out there. So, I mean, I didn't know that. I don't know too many other Papua New Guineans that would know about it who aren't in the very specific cocoa chocolate-making space, like our friend who told us. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's, just, it's a great story. Like, we need more stories like that. And I think we're, we're getting, we are learning about, um, I, mean, I mean, it's great also that sort of Western consumers are putting an emphasis on the story. Um, they want to know what it is. That they're buying, what it is that they're buying into, um, and that gives us gives places like PNG a real opportunity um, to to yeah market ourselves in that way because we are about stories and like we are about relationships and we are about and, and so every sort of Papua New Guinean venture has this really great story behind it. Um, so it's yeah it's 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 sort of making making that link and I think. Um, Definitely, I feel, with technology and just general exposure, and I think that's one of the things that came up in the dialogue is is these exchanges that we can have with Australia that will um, help us know what it is that, you know, we can... that, that Australians want um, or that we can provide. Um, and then the, the other end, Australians sort of understanding us more and there are things that they could learn from us too. So I think, yeah, in terms of tourism, that's that's a um, really great potential. I know there are indigenous communities in Australia that are doing um, great things in that regard. So that would be a great exchange opportunity for these New Guineans that are struggling with their Airbnbs out in quite remote rural areas to do something like that with Australia, um, and, and especially remote Australia, not just Indigenous communities, but other remote and regional sort of tourism um, ventures that are happening, that would be a great exchange.
0: Yeah, and that may or may not be a recommendation from the dialogue. Everyone will have to stay tuned. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
1: Wait, wait
0: and see, watch this space. Um, yes. So I think Aid to Papua New Guinea is just a small part of the Australia Papua New Guinea story, but it is, it does dominate a lot of the conversation because mm-hmm. Papua New Guinea is the biggest recipient of Australian aid and then the Pacific as a region is by far the biggest recipient of Australian aid and we had the Minister for International Development and the Pacific, Alex Hawke, on the show in our last episode which really reinforced um, how critical the Pacific is um, to our aid approach. I understand that you, I mean you have some thoughts on aid and you're quite experienced in Australia P&G aid relationship. What what do you think the future of aid is for, for P&G?
1: Um, so I I think I've only really gotten involved in the aid space in um, probably the last two years. Um, I, previous to that, I sort of had quite apprehensive views about aid and the Australia P&G relationship with aid. I think the the narrative when I was growing up has always been you know, PNG were too aid dependent um, because we're getting all these handouts from Australia, we are also sort of obliged to them in some way. Um, And, and then there was the whole, the whole boomerang aid as well. So I grew up with a lot of that. So I was sort of um, hesitant, I suppose, to go into that area because I wasn't sure, you know, how, how much what what PNG gets out of it? and I don't mean in terms of money, but like the the long term effect of it. Um, and then in the last couple of years, I've been introduced to the idea of social impact investing, and that for me is the kind of thing that I'm really passionate about. Passionate about. I think my whole thing is, and I always say this is equal and opposite exchange. Um, so I'm really. I, and, and this was something when we were doing the dialogue I was trying to steer away from is the is the whole Australia PNG as an aid recipient and Australia as an aid donor relationship because I don't believe that's how our entire relationship should be and that there should be, we should be equals and there should be, sure, we're getting aid from Australia, but there should be other things that we um, can give and take that um that places us as equals and and not as this sort of someone who's looking for a handout from Australia all the time. So I think social impact investment investing is a really great avenue for that um, because, as one of my friends says, you're giving a hand up and not a hand out. Um, and and we want PNG to be self reliant. We want the relationship with Australia, but we want it to be one where we are working cooperatively together and everyone benefits. Um, and it's not one where we are, we are sitting there waiting for Australia to help us out in every situation that we get ourselves stuck into. So, and, and where we're always sort of developing. We're always developing but never really progressing. Um, so, yeah, social impact investment for me is a great alternative and I am – increasingly passionate about it I'm I'm not doing as much as I would like to in that area but I'm, I'm I'm still involved in a couple of projects in that space so yeah it's it's a great development model
0: can you share any of those projects or are they top secret
1: um they're not they're not top secret um so um DFAT has a program called pacific rise um I'm not sure how long it's been around for it's 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 quite new Um, and within Pacific Rise, they have, um, they support various organizations that work in the social impact investment, um, space. So one of them that I've worked with quite recently, just a couple of months ago, and I'm still, um, working with them is called Good Return. And Good Return does a number of, um, number of, of things in sort of aid and development, but and especially in the sort of financial literacy space. And they've just started this new social impact investment program. And their their model is slightly different from um, some of the others, which is they are looking to assist small to medium enterprises, especially in the agriculture space, um, who are already operating maybe like one or two years, access loans um, by providing guarantees for those loans to banks that, that want to participate, um, in the program. So you're not, you're not really doing anything but bridging a a business. that's already running successfully. You're just helping them to get to the next step to expand. So this is the sort of thing that, um, so yeah, so that's what good return does. And this is the sort of thing that I feel is the future or should be the future for development. So you're not, you're not, um, Without you, they would still be functioning. You're just helping them be better or get bigger. Um, and that's, yeah, that's why I see.
0: It's a good example because because agriculture projects like that, you could do similar social impact investment in tourism projects. Like it's yes. it's replica- not replicable, but it's a similar model that you could have across numerous sectors.
1: Definitely. And I think b- because good return is just going into um, looking to go into PNG, so so what we did was basically a scoping mission to see the potential. Um, I think beyond agriculture, there there is, yeah, tourism is is a really great candidate, and um, it might be something that they expand into, into later. But yeah, it, it's it's, and I know there's another there's another social impact investment um, organization. I can't remember the impact, real impact. I think so. They're in in the Southern Highlands, working with a, working with craftspeople there, creating, so so people from the Southern Highlands in Yalugu specifically make these really great baskets and and woven pro- products. But what they're doing is making those products, um, sort of changing them a little bit um, to make them marketable in, in outside PNG. So you're making, they're making lampshades, they're making all kinds of, yeah. So, but the business is ultimately owned by the craftspeople, and Real impact is coming in with an in- investment. So they're basically partnering in this. And they've got the designer who's coming up with the products. Um, but all the money is basically going back to um, the people who are creating this this artists who are creating this basket. So uh, so they wouldn't these artists wouldn't otherwise be able to sell in, you know, a fancy furniture shop in Sydney. And now they can because the product's out there.
0: That's such a good example. And, and you remind me of how many, co- like really cool products there are coming out of P&G. Like, mm. I think you wear a lot of them. So you're a great model for all things P&G. Um, but like Zambilla & Co is my absolute favourite earring brand. They're from um, Papua New Guinea. And um, Among Equals is a fantastic brand selling billums in australia and like there's so many of these brands emerging um which again are a fantastic opportunity to change the narrative about png like let's view png as 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 a place where we can get really cool clothes and earrings and lampshades.
1: yeah so there's there's um there's definitely a lot of discussion on places like twitter about this because we are changing our very traditional cultural products to be something Something different. So what they're not. So there's a little bit of discussion, which is healthy, um, where some people who are saying, you know, these are uh, these are things that are um, have significant cultural meaning to us, and then you know we shouldn't amend them, and we shouldn't change, and we shouldn't commercialize them. There's definitely that going on, and 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 I'm all for those discussions, but I'm also very aware that there are people who don't have access to Twitter or whatever your social media, you know. Uh, account and platform is who actually just need to be able to make a a, a solid income and a consistent income and that this is an opportunity for them. So it is about striking a balance. Um, And yeah, so it is about striking a balance and I'm very supportive of that, but I'm also very conscious that we need to, especially if we're talking about our cultural products to be doing that in a way that also honors what it is what the true form is
0: yeah that is one of my favorite topics I think you and I could have done an entire episode on that (laughs) on intellectual property and culture because you know I think the thing that does need to keep coming up when we have these conversations is how can we do things like tourism and um, consumer goods in such a way that incentivize protecting and preserving culture rather than Mm -hmm. commodifying and selling and altering culture like they're two yeah. very different things
1: very much so and it's a it's a like for png right now because we've i don't think we've really had this issue before because in the past when we've um well first of all in the past these sort of avenues were not open to us and when we did sell our products it was usually just as they were and now we have this ability to sort of enter mainstream markets and again technology is a huge part of that um so we're grappling with we want to pre- yeah preserve our culture but we also are developing a lot of our people who do not have access to the cash economy and this is one of their only options are we going to deprive them of this because we want to be quite conservative really and maintain these traditions of old um so that's um yeah it's a great topic and it's a huge topic of discussion I think I mean younger me was probably you know quite sentimental about culture and I still am but the older me is very practical and I'm like these people need to eat now <laughs> so what do you, you know and they need to send their kids to school and they need to pay for health care and um, if they have an opportunity um, to sell their products um, and to sell it in a way that still is, that is respectful of them and still respectful of, you know, the many thousands of years that we developed this art form or this skill, then let's go ahead and do that.
0: Yeah, absolutely agree. Um, these are such awesome insights. I mean, to finish, is there one particular message that you think you'd like the aid and NGO sector to understand about Papua New Guinea? I
1: think right now the most important message would be really that we've PNG has really come a long way, and we have developed not just our country but our, our like our people. So we have very highly educated Papua New Guineans now, Papua New Guineans that have travelled and seen, been exposed and seen a lot of different places. And I think what happens in the um, sometimes with the NGO and you know develop development space is that people still think that we are where we were back then. um, And they talk about PNG and talk to PNG in that way, um, and that we need to be saved. But there is more of an opportunity to include Papua New Guineans in that discussion and to have them working in those spaces. um, And to have them working in those spaces there's I think that's also a great opportunity for us to again have some sort of um, ownership about how it is that we develop whether you know it's through aid or um, in terms of our politics or whatever that that but in terms of aid there is a space for us to own how we use that aid and how we what programs are developed and um, just just the conversations even about aid and development and I'm Yeah, thank you for having me on this, on your program.
0: Oh, thank you. This has been awesome. You're so insightful and I really appreciate your time. So there you have it, episode 54. I don't know about you, but I found the discussion on perceptions of Australia and PNG to be really powerful. And I think it's our responsibility, those of us who work in development and who have the opportunity to work in PNG, to be really honest and respectful in our portrayal of Papua New Guinea. I'm the first person to admit that it's tempting to boast about a trip there. It has this exotic, dangerous, last frontier narrative associated with it, and it's easy to buy into that. The reality, however, to set the record straight, is that whilst incredibly complex and with numerous development challenges, PNG is also incredibly beautiful, welcoming, and diverse. It's incumbent on us to represent PNG fairly and respectfully in our micro worlds, as well as in media and politics in Australia. I'd love to share more stories of the diversity and richness of P&G, so please get in touch if you've got a story you'd like to share. Otherwise, I look forward to sharing our latest episode with you next week. Bye for now.